Chapter 12 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tasha Hobbs Peterson. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 12. Arban our encampment Setem and mohammed amin winged bulls discovered excavations commenced their results discovery of small objects of second pair of winged bulls of lion of chinese bottle of vase of egyptian scarabs of tombs the scene of the captivity on the morning after our arrival in front of the encampment of Sheikh Mohammed Amin, we crossed the Kabur on a small raft and pitched our tents on its right or northern bank. I found the ruins to consist of a large artificial mound of irregular shape, washed and indeed partly carried away by the river, which was gradually undermining the perpendicular cliff left by the falling earth. The Jabours were encamped to the west of it. I chose for our tents a recess, like an amphitheater, facing the stream. We were thus surrounded and protected on all sides. Behind us and to the east rose the mound, and to the west were the family and dependents of Mohammed Amin. In the desert beyond the ruins were scattered far and wide the tents of the Jabours, and of several Arab tribes who had placed themselves under their protection. The Sherabine, wandering keepers of herds of buffaloes, the Bugara, driven by the incursions of the Anasia from their pasture grounds at Ras al Ain, the source of the Kabur, and some families of the Jays, a large clan residing in the district of Orfa, whose sheikh, having quarrelled with his brother chiefs, had now joined Mohammed Amin. From the top of the mound the eye ranged over a level country, bright with flowers and spotted with black tents, and innumerable flocks of sheep and camels. During our stay at Arban, the color of these great plains was undergoing a continual change. After being for some days of a golden yellow, a new family of flowers would spring up, and it would turn almost in a night to a bright scarlet which would again as suddenly give way to the deepest blue. Then the meadows would be mottled with various hues, or would put on the emerald green of the most luxuriant of pastures, the glowing descriptions I had so frequently received from the Bedouins of the beauty and fertility of the banks of the Kabur were more than realized. In the extreme distance to the east of us rose a solitary conical elevation, called by the Arabs Kukab. In front, to the south, was the beautiful hill of the Sinjar, ever varying in color and in outline, as the declining sun left fresh shadows on its furrowed sides. Behind us, and not far distant, was the low wooded range of Abdul Aziz. Artificial mounds, smaller in size than Arban, rose here and there above the thin belt of trees and shrubs skirting the river-bank. I had brought with me a tent large enough to hold full two hundred persons, and intended as a musif, or place of reception, 
always open to the wayfarer and the Arab visitor. For the first duty of a traveller wishing to mix with true Bedouins, and to gain an influence over them, is the exercise of hospitality. This great pavilion was pitched in the centre of my encampment, with its entrance facing the river. To the right were the tents of the kawas and servants, one fitted up expressly for the doctor to receive patients, of whom there was no lack at all times, and the black Arab tent of Rathia, who would not mix with the jabours. To the left were those of my fellow travellers, and about two hundred yards beyond, near the excavations, my own private tent, to which I retired during the day, when wishing to be undisturbed, and to which the Arabs were not admitted. In it also we usually breakfasted and dined, except when there were any Arab guests of distinction, with whom it was necessary to eat bread. In front of our encampment, and between it and the river, was a small lawn, on which were picketed our horses. Satom and Muhammad Amin usually eat with us, and soon became perfectly reconciled to knives and forks, and the other restraints of civilized life. Satom's tact and intelligence were indeed remarkable. Nothing escaped his hawk-like eye. A few hours had enabled him to form a correct estimate of the character of each one of the party, and he had detected peculiarities which might have escaped the notice of the most observant European. The most polished Turk would have been far less at home in the society of ladies, and during the whole of our journey he never committed a breach of manners, only acquired after a few hours' residence with us. As a companion he was delightful, full of anecdote of unclouded spirits, acquainted with the history of every Bedouin tribe, their politics and their wars, and intimate with every part of the desert, its productions and its inhabitants. Many hours I spent with him, seated after the sun went down, on a mound overlooking the great plain and the winding river, listening to the rich flow of his graceful Bedouin dialect, to his eloquent stories of Arab life, and to his animated descriptions of forays, wars, and single combats. Mohammed Amin, the sheikh of the Jabours, was a good-natured, portly Arab, in intelligence inferior to Satom, and wanting many of the qualities of the pure Bedouin. During our intercourse, I had every reason to be satisfied with his hospitality, and the cordial aid he afforded me. The Jabur chief was a complete patriarch in his tribe, having no less than sixteen children, of whom six sons were horsemen, and the owners of mares. The youngest, a boy of four years old, named Sultan, was as handsome and dirty as the best of Arab children. His mother, who had recently died, was the beautiful sister of Abd Rubu. I chanced to be her brother's guest when the news of her death was brought to him. An Arab of the tribe, weary and wayworn, entered the tent, and seated himself without giving the usual salutation. All present knew that he had come from the Kabur and from distant friends. His silence argued evil tidings. By an indirect remark, immediately understood, 
he told his errand to one who sat next to him, and who in turn whispered it to Sheikh Ibrahim, the chief's uncle. The old man said aloud with a sigh, It is the will and mercy of God. She is not dead, but released. Abd Rabu at once understood of whom he spake. He arose and went forth, and the wailing of the mother and of the women soon issued from the inner recesses of the tent. My first care after crossing to Arban was to examine the sculptures described by the Arabs. The river, having gradually worn away the mound, had, during the recent floods, left uncovered a pair of winged human-headed bulls, some six feet above the water's edge, and full fifty beneath the level of the ruin. Only the forepart of these figures had been exposed to view, and Mohammed Amin would not allow any of the soil to be removed before my arrival. The earth was soon cleared away, and I found them to be of a coarse limestone, not exceeding five and a half feet in height by four and a half in length. Between them was a pavement slab of the same material. They resembled in general form the well-known winged bulls of Nineveh, but in the style of art they differed considerably from them. The outline and treatment was bold and angular, with an archaic feeling conveying the impression of great antiquity. They bore the same relation to the more delicately finished and highly ornamented sculptures of Nimrod, as the earliest remains of Greek art due to the exquisite monuments of Phidias and Praxiteles. The human features were unfortunately much injured, but such parts as remained were sufficient to show that the countenance had a peculiar character, differing from the Assyrian type. The sockets of the eyes were deeply sunk, probably to receive the white and the ball of the eye in ivory or glass. The nose was flat and large, and the lips thick and overhanging like those of a negro. Human ears were attached to the head, and bull's ears to the horned cap, which was low and square at the top, not high and ornamented, like those of Korzabad and Kuyunjik, nor rounded like those of Nimrud. The hair was elaborately curled, as in the pure Assyrian sculptures, though more rudely carved. The wings were small in proportion to the size of the body, and had not the majestic spread of those of the bulls that adorned the palaces of Nineveh. It would appear from them that the sculptures belong to the palace of a king whose name has been found on no other monument. No titles are attached to it, not even that of king, nor is the country over which he reigned mentioned, so that some doubt may exist as to whether it really be a royal name. The great accumulation of earth above these sculptures proves that since the destruction of the edifice in which they stood, other habitations have been raised on its ruins. Arban, indeed, is mentioned by the Arab geographers as a flourishing city, in a singularly fertile district of the Kabur. Part of a minaret, whose walls were cased with colored tiles, and ornamented with Cufic inscriptions in relief, like that of the Sinjar, and the foundations of buildings 
are still seen on the mound and at its foot on the western side are the remains of a bridge which once spanned the stream but the river has changed its course the piers adorned with elegantly shaped arabesque characters are now on the dry land i will describe at once the results of the excavations carried on during the three weeks our tents were pitched at arban to please the jabur sheik and to keep around our encampment for greater security a body of armed men when the tribe changed their pastures i hired about fifty of mohammed amin's arabs and placed them in parties with the workmen who had accompanied me from mosul tunnels were opened behind the bulls already uncovered and in various parts of the ruins on the same level trenches were also dug into the surface of the mound behind the bulls were found various assyrian relics amongst them a copper bell like those from nimrud and fragments of bricks with arrow-headed characters painted yellow with white outlines upon a pale green ground in other parts of the mound were discovered glass and pottery some assyrian others of a more doubtful character several fragments of earthenware ornamented with flowers and scroll-work and highly glazed had assumed the brilliant and varied iridescence of ancient glass it was natural to conclude from the usual architectural arrangement of assyrian edifices that the two bowls described stood at an entrance to a hall or chamber we searched in vain for the remains of walls although digging for three days to the right and left of the sculptures a work of considerable difficulty in consequence of the immense heap of superincumbent earth i then directed a tunnel to be carried towards the centre of the mound hoping to find a corresponding doorway opposite i was not disappointed on the fifth day a similar pair of winged bulls were discovered they were of the same size and inscribed with the same characters a part of one having been originally broken off either in carving the sculpture or in moving it a fresh piece of stone had been carefully fitted into its place i also dug to the right and left of these sculptures for remains of walls but without success and then resumed the tunneling towards the centre of the mound in a few days a lion with extended jaws sculptured in the same coarse limestone and in the same bold archaic style as the bulls was discovered it had five legs and the tail had the claw at the end as in the nineveh bas-reliefs in height it was nearly the same as the bulls i searched in vain for the one which must have formed the opposite side of the doorway with the exception of these sculptures no remains of building were found in this part of the mound in another tunnel opened at some distance from the bulls half of a human figure in relief was discovered the face was in full one hand grasped a sword or dagger the other held some object to the breast the hair and beard were long and flowing and ornamented with a profusion of curls as in the assyrian bas-reliefs the headdress appeared to consist of a kind of circular helmet ending in a sharp point 
the treatment and style, marked the sculpture to be of the same period as the bull and lion. Such were the sculptures discovered in the Mound of Arbonne. Amongst smaller objects of different periods were some of considerable interest. Jars, vases, funeral urns, highly glazed pottery, and fragments of glass. In a trench on the south side of the ruin was found a small green and white bottle inscribed with Chinese characters. A jar about four feet high in coarse half-baked clay was dug out of the center of the mound. The handles were formed by rudely designed human figures, and the sides covered with grotesque representations of men and animals and arabesque ornaments in relief. Vases of the same material, ornamented with figures, are frequently discovered in digging the foundations of houses in the modern town of Mosul. They appear to belong to a comparatively recent period, later probably than the Christian era, but previous to the Arab occupation. As they have upon them human figures dressed in a peculiar costume, consisting of a high cap and embroidered robes, I should attribute them to the Persians. A vase similar in size and shape to that of Urban, and also covered with grotesque representations of monstrous animals, the finest specimen I have seen of this class of antiquities, was found beneath the foundations of the very ancient Chaldean church of Mesquinta at Mosul, when that edifice was pulled down and rebuilt two years ago. It was given to me by the Catholic Chaldean patriarch, to whom it belonged as chief of the community, but was unfortunately destroyed with other interesting relics by the Arabs, who plundered a raft laden with antiquities on its way to Baghdad after my return to Europe. Amongst other relics discovered at Arban were a large copper ring, apparently Assyrian, an ornament in earthenware resembling the pine cone of the Assyrian sculptures, a bull's head in terracotta, fragments of painted bricks, probably of the same period, and several Egyptian scarabi. It is singular that engraved stones and scarabs bearing Egyptian devices, and in some instances even royal cartouches, should have been found on the banks of the Kabur. Similar objects were subsequently dug up at Nimrud, and brought to me by the Arabs from various ruins in Assyria. It may be well for the reader to observe in this connection that most of the Egyptian relics discovered in the Assyrian ruins are of the time of the 18th Egyptian dynasty, or of the 15th century before Christ, a period when, as we learn from Egyptian monuments, there was a close connection between Assyria and Egypt. Several tombs were also found in the ruins, consisting principally of boxes or sarcophagi of earthenware, like those existing above the Assyrian palaces near Mosul. Some, however, were formed by two large earthen jars, like the common eastern vessel for holding oil, laid horizontally and joined mouth to mouth. These terracotta coffins appear to be of the same period as those found in all the great ruins on the banks of the rivers of Mesopotamia, and are not Assyrian. They contained human remains turned to dust, 
with the exception of the skull and a few of the larger bones, and generally three or four urns of highly glazed blue pottery. Fewer remains and objects of antiquity were discovered in the mounds on the Kambur than I had anticipated. They were sufficient, however, to prove that the ruins are, on the whole, of the same character as those on the banks of the Tigris, that the Assyrian Empire at one time embraced the whole of Mesopotamia, including the country watered by the Kabur, there can be no doubt, as indeed is shown by the inscriptions on the monuments of Nineveh. Whether the sculptures at Arban belong to the period of Assyrian domination, or to a distinct nation afterwards conquered, or whether they may be looked upon as contemporary with, or more ancient than, the bas-reliefs of Nimrud, are questions not so easily answered. The archaic character of the treatment and design, the peculiar form of the features, the rude though forcible delineation of the muscles, and the simplicity of the details certainly convey the impression of greater antiquity than any monuments hitherto discovered in Assyria proper. A deep interest at the same time attaches to these remains from the site they occupy. To the Chabar were transported by the Assyrian king, after the destruction of Samaria, the captive children of Israel, and on its banks the heavens were opened to Ezekiel, and he saw visions of God and spake his prophecies to his brother exiles. Around Arban may have been pitched the tents of the sorrowing Jews, as those of the Arabs were during my visit. To the same pastures they led their sheep, and they drank of the same waters. Then the banks of the river were covered with towns and villages, and a palace temple still stood on the mound, reflected in the transparent stream. We have, however, but one name connected with the Kabur recorded in scripture, that of Tel Abib, the mound of Abib, or of the heaps of ears of corn. But whether it applies to a town, or to a simple artificial elevation, such as still abound and are still called Tels, is a matter of doubt. I sought in vain for some trace of the word amongst the names now given by the wandering Arab to the various ruins on the Kabur and its confluence. We know that Jews still lingered in the cities of the Kabur until long after the Arab invasion, and we may perhaps recognize in the Jewish communities of Ras al-Ain, at the sources of the river, and of Karkisia, or Karkemish, at its confluence with the Euphrates, visited and described by Benjamin of Tudela in the latter end of the twelfth century of the Christian era, the descendants of the captive Israelites. But the hand of time has long since swept even this remnant away, with the busy crowds which throng the banks of the river. From its mouth to its source, from Karkemish to Ras al-Ain, there is now no single permanent human habitation on the Kabur. Its rich meadows and its deserted ruins are alike become the encamping places of the wandering Arab. End of chapter 12